Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We continue our fall sermon series, Hometown Exiles, by hearing from the Apostle Peter giving the small church in Nicomedia three reasons why they are so wonderful. These reasons apply to us today as Christians. You're listening to Hometown Exiles, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, by Rev. Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from uh, the book of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter. That's the letter uh, that our series is based on. And that, um, that reading is found on, um, well, actually, you all have different Bibles, so I can't tell you the page. But it's 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. And, and before I, I start, before I start preaching on this passage, I'd like, and before I read it, I'd like to set the context so you can hear Peter's words really clearly. So I'm going to take you on a journey through time and space. Okay, so first, we're going to travel through space. We're going to get in a plane. We're going to go over the Atlantic Ocean. We're going to land in Turkey. We're going to go up to the northern part of Turkey on the shores of the Black Sea. And now we're going to go back in time to the time when Turkey was called Asia Minor, and now we're in a city, which is up by the Black Sea, called Nicomedia. Nicomedia is a big city. It's the capital of Bithynia, which is one of the places to whom Peter wrote his letter. It's one of the places he mentions, okay? And now we're in the center. We're coming into the center of Nicomedia, into the town square, and we're climbing the steps of the Roman temple that is there. We're up at the top of the steps. And there are these beautiful marble steps that we've climbed. And we look up. And there are these great big tall three-story high columns. Ribbed columns that rise up that form the supports for the temple. And above those columns is a relief sculpture of Roman gods. Gods and goddesses. And the goddesses look beautiful. They're perfectly proportioned with that classical beauty. And the gods, the male gods, they are all bare-chested and buff. And in one hand, some of them are holding swords and some of them are holding lightning bolts. It's an impressive sculpture. And all the leading lights of the city are starting to come into the town square. It's getting busier and busier. This is a feast day. And so all the people are coming in for this great pagan Roman feast and they're climbing the steps of the temple. And here comes the governor and he's surrounded by his entourage of soldiers and their armor is glistening in the sun. And just behind him, we see some of the leading merchants of the city and uh, they're wearing brand new togas. Look like they might be Armani, very fashionable, okay? And everybody's healthy and everyone's well. It's a who's who of Nicomedia. And they're shaking their hand, each other's hands and looking each other in the eye. And they're walking with long strides. They're full of confidence. Down in the middle of the square, as we look down from the steps of the temple, we see a statue of the emperor. His head is upraised in noble fashion. He's got a laurel crown on his head, symbols victory in Rome, right? He's got a sword upraised in his hand, and under his foot, he's got one foot up in the air, and under his foot is the head of one of his enemies. 
Well, now we're leaving the town square, walking backwards through the people, and everyone's streaming towards the town square, so we're sort of walking against the traffic, and we're going out to the edge of the city. And as we get closer and closer to the edge of the city, we, we notice that while most people are going towards the festival, there's at least a few people who are going in our direction. And they're common folk. Some slaves, a couple of laborers. There's some wealthy people as well, but it's just a small group of people and, and they seem eager to not be noticed. They're a little jumpy. They don't look others in the eye as they pass by. They're all heading towards this one house. And they go inside, and we realize we go inside with them. And we realize this is their worship space. It's just a simple house, simple room. There's no marble. There's no statues. There is one picture on the wall, though. It's a picture of a crucified man. His head is bowed in pain. And on his head is not a laurel of victory, but a crown of thorns. And his hand is not holding a lightning bolt. His hands are nailed to a cross. And there's no head of an enemy under his feet. His feet are spiked to that same cross. These are Christian worshipers. These are the hometown exiles that we talked about last week. And they are here to worship that crucified man. They are here to worship Jesus Christ, their Lord. And today, they're particularly excited because they got a letter. They got a letter from the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter has sent them a letter of encouragement and instruction, and they're going to read part of it in their service today. And they're very excited. They can't wait to hear what Peter has to say to them. So the, the, the reader for the day comes up, and he stands in front of the people, and he clears his throat. And he unrolls the scroll, and he starts to read. As you come to him, the living stone, and here the reader points up to that picture of Jesus that's in their worship space, the crucified Jesus. As you come to him, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
I hope you could hear from that setup and, and from what I was trying to read um, that, that Peter's words in this passage are aimed specifically at their situation. The imagery that Peter uses, the things that he says, are, are obviously aimed at this, this little group of hometown exiles who are in this small minority position in these big towns in Asia Minor. And he's saying to them, Look, you, you guys may not worship one of those muscular gods, but you worship Jesus Christ and he's glorious in an entirely different way. And you may not be in some magnificent temple with three-story columns, but you're a house. You're a house of living stones built on the chief cornerstone. So the whole letter, and then maybe this passage in particular, is written to those people to tell them that even though they feel small and even though they feel helpless, they are God's special people and they are strong and wonderful even though they are small. And this morning with you, I would like to share three things that Peter is saying about that church that make them strong and wonderful even though they are small. And, and they're good for us to hear because they're the same things that make us strong and wonderful even when we feel small. Let's listen. First thing Peter says to them is that they are strong and wonderful, these hometown exiles, because they are built on the living stone. You are built on the living stone, Jesus. Now that's an interesting image, living stone. When you think of stone and the apostle Peter, how do you relate those two things, stone and the apostle Peter? What does that make you think of? Peter's name, right? Peter's name, which Jesus gave to him, means rock. It's a slightly different word than the one used in our passage. It's lithos is stone, petros is rock, but they're clearly related. They're in the same semantic field. Peter got the name rock from Jesus because he said, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter, you will be a strong foundation. You will help me build my church. Did Peter live up to his name? Was he a rock steady kind of guy early in his ministry? Not so much. Peter waffled. He talked a good game, right? He was always good at saying the right thing. But when the chips were down, you could tell that inside he was churning and insecure. And a really good example of that is how he behaved on the weekend where Jesus died. First, he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, even if everybody else leaves you, I will never leave you. I will stand firm. Look at me, Jesus. I'm a rock. See, Jesus, see how great I am? See how I'm serving you? And then what happens? Well, we all know. A servant girl asks him a question, and the next thing you know, he's denying Jesus, and then he's running away. Not so much a rock, more like dust in the wind. It's not until Jesus picks up Peter and puts him back on the cornerstone, anchors him again in Christ, in his own love. Remember what he says when he confronts Peter. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? What's he doing? He's making sure that Peter is anchored in his love. Once he takes, picks Peter up and puts him back on the cornerstone, it's only then that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter becomes a great leader through whom God builds his church. It's when he's on the stone that he becomes an effective living stone. I read something by Dirk Hollebeek on Facebook this week. I know some of you know who Dirk is. 
He's not a member of this church. He's got family here, relatives. And he's been visiting here. Uh, he has visited here a number of times. And Dirk is writing on Facebook because he's been struggling uh, with very serious uh, leukemia for at least four years. And that is on top of other health issues that Dirk has had. So he has been constantly in and out of the hospital for the last four years. Well, this week, sitting in a hospital bed, in weakness, in pain, Dirk wrote a reflection about a saying that a lot of Christians like to use. And it's a saying that I think maybe you know. You sometimes see it on bumper stickers. The saying is, the Lord never gives us more than we can handle. Have you heard that statement before? The Lord never gives us more than we can handle. Sitting in weakness in his hospital bed, Turk said that he thought that this was a load of nonsense. Every day of my life is more than I can handle, he said. On my own, with my own strength, based on the solidity of my own rock, Every single day is more than I can handle. And that's obviously clear for Dirk sitting in that hospital room. But I think if you're honest with yourself, I know if I'm honest with myself, every day for me is more than I can handle between what's in my life and what's out there. On my own, by myself, dust I am and to dust I shall return. It is only when I'm anchored in the right place. When I'm standing on my cornerstone, when the love of Jesus fills me, that I am able to be more than I can possibly be by myself. Standing on Christ, my cornerstone, my solid ground, the one who was firm through the fiercest drought and storm, then I can be a living stone, then the Lord can use me. You people are living stones, little church, says Peter, because you are standing on Christ, your cornerstone. That's the first reason why they're strong and wonderful, even though they're small. The second reason why these hometown exiles are strong and wonderful is that they are the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. You, little church, you are the new Israel, and all my plans and all my promises are coming to fruition in you. You're the new Israel. This is the Bible nerd portion of this sermon because to see how this is true, you really have to have an Old Testament mindset. You really have to know your Old Testament. And that's true of the whole New Testament, but maybe especially with 1 Peter. 1 Peter is citing the Old Testament all the time. And, it, and when he's not quoting it directly, he's making allusions. So if you don't know your Old Testament, if you, if you don't have those old stories in mind and those old Bible passages, you, you'll miss half of what Peter is trying to say. In this passage, he's very clearly trying to say, and through the whole letter, he's trying to say that the church is the fulfillment of all God's plans that he's working on throughout history. He says that explicitly in chapter 1 that I read last week in verses 10 through 12. The prophets, when they were looking forward to God's will, what they were seeing was Christ and the church. They were looking forward to you, and even angels longed to look into the things that you have seen. Now, in our passage, he continues to make that point. He continues to point to the Old Testament to say, you're the fulfillment of God's plans. Just three places where you see that. Peter quotes the Old Testament in this passage three times, right? Twice from Isaiah, once from the Psalms. The prophet, the psalmist, they're looking for you, says Peter. 
And then Peter calls them chosen people, precious to the Lord. You are God's chosen people. Who are the chosen people in the Old Testament? Israel. You're the fulfillment of Israel. You're God's chosen people. And then finally, in our passage, he calls them, Peter calls them, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. A royal priesthood and a holy nation. Now, that is a quote, essentially, from an Old Testament passage. And I wonder how many of you know your Old Testament well enough to know which passage. Where in the Old Testament does it talk about a royal priesthood and a holy nation? Exodus 19, verse 6. An incredibly important verse. Israel's at the foot of Mount Sinai. They're about to get the Ten Commandments. And God is telling them, now that they've arrived at Mount Sinai, who they are and what their purpose is. And he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Almost exactly the same. In Peter, it's a royal priesthood and a holy nation. In Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what God is saying to Israel in Exodus is that you will be my representatives. When you live righteously, when you live justly, when you become the people you are meant to be and follow my laws, the whole world will see and they will know that I am the Lord. You will lift up my name. You will declare my praises. And now Peter is saying the exact same thing about this little church. You are a royal priest and a holy nation so that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You will be my representatives in this town. Small though you may be, when you love each other, when you do my will, the people will see and they will give glory to God. You are the new Israel. And all my plans, all my promises are coming to fruition in you. Now let me qualify this a little bit. We're talking about the relationship between Israel and the church, right? The church does not replace Israel. That's not what Peter is saying. There are some Christians who believe that. That's not what we believe, and I don't think that's what Peter is saying. The church is the fulfillment of Israel. Romans 9 through 11. Israel, the covenant people of God, they're like a tree. And, and Israel's the trunk, and the trunk is still standing, and the church is, are like branches. All the churches are like branches grafted into this trunk of God's promises. And now the tree spreads its leaves and drops its fruit over the whole world. It's become this magnificent edifice, this magnificent community that we see today. You are the church. All my plans, all my promises, all my prophecies point to you, says the Lord. That's the second reason they're strong and wonderful. The third reason that this church, this little community is strong and wonderful, these hometown exiles, is because they are together. Because they are a community. You all are living stones, and God is building you into a house. You're living stones that God is building into a house, into a temple. You're not standing stones. You're not like those ancient, ancient monoliths that you see in the fields of England. You know, those single stones like Stonehenge standing in the middle of a field. That's not how God builds his temple. Individuals standing on the cornerstone. No. All you individual stones are built together into a house. You're being built. The image here is a God is a stonemason. And he picks up individual stones 
and he works them and he puts them together and makes them this one magnificent community which is more glorious than any Roman temple you'll ever see. Let's think more deeply about that image, God the stonemason. What would an ancient stonemason have to do with an individual stone like you or me in order to make it part of a house? Well, we know that an individual stone as it is uh, would need quite a bit of work because if you're going to build a strong house or a beautiful temple, the stones have got to fit together perfectly, right? They, they can't sort of half fit together. There has to be a perfectly smooth, perfectly united seam. Otherwise, the building will be weak and the, the water will get in and the air will get in. So what did the mason need to do to a stone to make it into a building? You'd have to take an individual stone, take a chisel, take a hammer, and start chipping away at that stone. And every imperfection, every part of the stone that kept it from fitting with the others, every bad part of the weak part of that stone had to be chipped away. And sometimes a mason would have to take that hammer and that chisel and just have to really whack away at the stones to get those imperfections off so that they could be one, so that they could be a unity, so that they could sit together to make this temple. I wonder... What parts of you the stonemason needs to knock away before you can fit into this temple that he's building, before you can become part of this community, before we can be perfectly united with one another as the mason wants? Actually, Peter tells us. Peter tells us the imperfections that need to be knocked away. Mike read that earlier. It's in verse 1 of chapter 2, right before our passage. He talks about the things that we need to get rid of in order that we can be a community. He lists five bad things that need to be knocked out of our lives, and every single one of them are things that prevent real community. Rid yourselves of malice. Malicious thoughts about each other. When we think ill of one another, that kills community. Deceit, got to get rid of that. Failure to love the truth, failure to protect it and pursue it, kills community, kills trust. Hypocrisy, envy, slander, saying nasty things about each other behind one another's back, not good for community. These are destructive things for community and these are precisely, precisely the things that the chisel of the Holy Spirit is working to hammer out of our lives. How's our temple fitting together these days? All you living stones, how are how we, we fitting with one another? Are we perfectly united or are there gaps between us? Are there imperfections? Is there some malice? Is there some slander that's keeping us from being one in the way that God calls us to be one? If there are gunk, if there are imperfections, let's put ourselves in the hand of the mason. Let's open ourselves up to the chisel of the Holy Spirit and let us work with him. Let us expose ourselves and let's work together so that we can be one. So that these imperfections can be taken away. Let's fight for this community and the unity that God wants, that the mason wants for us in Jesus Christ our Lord built on the cornerstone. Because when we are one in love... When we are together, 
as one perfect community. When Christ's love fills us so deeply that it starts to overflow into the world and bless the people around us, then we really are a temple that is far more glorious than anything that stood in Nicomedia or anything that's ever been in Rome or New York City or Washington or any earthly temple of commerce or any religion that has ever been. Take us in your hands, Lord. Take out your chisel. Start hammering. We are ready. Amen. Our God, your message is wonderful and it's hard. It's so good to hear that in Christ, the cornerstone, we, we have hope and we can be effective people, but we hear also, Lord, that we need to be shaped, that we need to be built, that we need to be formed. We put ourselves in your hands. We open our hearts and our lives to the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would make us into a temple in which you live by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.